Welcome to the UFTA Podcast. Hosted by Emily O'Connor and Jordan Rudolph. The UFTA Podcast brings you a surprisingly fresh take on everyday topics in health, fitness, and everything in between. We want to open the door to explore new information and new solutions in a way that's easy for you to understand and apply to your own life. Let's get into today's episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to episode 11 of the UFTA podcast. We have a special episode today to wrap up season 1 for us on a weird number, 11, I know. But um, why why odd numbers? Why, why, you know, majority rule numbers? We'll just go with 11. Sure. Yeah. And as you can see, I am joined as always by coach extraordinaire, Coach Emily O'Connor. Em, how are you doing today? I am good. Just wrapped up a busy morning at the gym, uh, coaching all morning, so did that uh, and I'm excited to be here and record with all of you uh, or really just you in the room and I'm excited for you guys to dive into kind of this unique episode uh, in which we are answering all of your guys's questions yeah so we asked on our social media pages if you could post some questions for us that we could put forth in an episode that we used to do on our previous podcast that went really really well we also did that live. Obviously not doing this one live, so we did that again. We pulled from those questions, and then we also just started grabbing people at the gym and asking them questions, and we got some good ones. We got some really yeah, good ones. I agree. We are going to do this just rapid fire. We're just gonna go in random order. I only have a few on my end. Emily's got several that we're going to go with. We'll give a shout out to uh, the person who asked us the questions as well. And then if there's other questions that come up within these questions, Basically, I'll just play it off like I'm asking Emily and I the, the, a question that could come off of that, and then we can kind of just take it from there. But um, probably a shorter episode than usual. Obviously a very different ep- episode than usual. And then we're going to go through a quick hiatus just to kind of recoup and regather ourselves kind of through this holiday 4th of July season. And we'll be back with guests and everything else on for Season 2, following the same things that you guys know and love. Yeah. yeah. Dive right in. Dive right in. All right. The first question that we got comes from Rose. She asks, how do I challenge myself without hurting myself when wanting to increase weights? How do I challenge myself without hurting myself when I want to increase weights? Great question. My first thought is, why do you just want to increase weights? Yeah. And I know that can be that can be an obvious answer to some. Um, but the big thing is uh, increasing weights can be a sign of strength, can be a sign of you're getting stronger, and can be a sign of results, but it's not the only way that we can get stronger. It's not the only way that we can get results. It's not the only way we can get better. So um, first and foremost, we have to, as I answer this, and I'm going to try and do it simply because we could probably talk all day on each one of these questions, right? Um, you, you have to earn it. Right, you have to build into that next parameter, that next uh, progression of weight, not parameter, progression. And when you get to a certain level or weight at that certain rep for a certain exercise, we all hit a wall where, wow, 100 pounds felt easy, felt great, I can do that all day, and we go to 105 and it feels hard. Right? And that's when you know you're at a good level for where you're at for your rep scheme. 
So then it's it's breaking through that plateau to become stronger, and, and that might be what Rose is asking too. I agree. Yeah, I think when we approach that kind of if you're trying to break through and add weight to become stronger, that's where, where Jordan mentioned going up in weight can be a sign of that, but also adding some time under tension via a pause or an eccentric, all those things can sometimes be more helpful uh, in breaking through some of those plateaus and allow us to be a little bit more aware of our body position and control our body position within space so that we don't feel like we might kind of put ourselves at risk for potentially a little bit more uh, injury risk, if you will, as opposed to grabbing something we've never done. So when we move a little bit slower, we can better control, we can better recruit all the musculature that should be working during any given exercise. So sometimes those eccentrics or pauses can be a nice way to not necessarily go up in weight, but start to feel confident as we do go up to a heavier weight. Yeah, the tempos, the whatever tempo could be slow down, slow up, pause at the bottom. That's when I when I say tempo, it's the eccentric, isometric, concentric. All the all the different varieties, all the different ways that we can move. There's a fourth one too, but we don't need to talk about that. EIC. Um, that and range of motion are usually good ways to build the movement still kind of doing the same movement but you're also doing it doing a different version of it to help with this and for example what i mean by this it's a high hex bar deadlift if we're doing a high hex bar deadlift and we get to that point where we're stuck maybe we try elevating it on plates for a week or two to allow for a different range of motion, which could allow for a different weight stimulus, which could build some strength in certain ranges of motion within that. Maybe we add pauses, maybe we add eccentrics. Yes, that weight will change, but those type of training uh, parameters, I keep wanting to say parameters for some reason, training uh, modifications or training adaptations, training progressions could also help the main lift. Mm -hmm. So Push-ups are another great example that doesn't require weight, it's just your body weight. How do I get from 12 to 15? Well, we can do a couple different methods of that. We can do the pause stuff like Emily and I mentioned, or we can do what's called a grease the groove method, which basically you're doing push-ups every day, multiple times a day, but you're never going to maximal. That's also a sneaky way that could work potentially with other exercises, but it works phenomenally well with body weight. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's some different things there too. Yeah, I think that about about wraps it up I think feeling confident in what you're about to do approaching it knowing that if you do choose to go up and wait like the worst thing that can happen after one rep as long as you're locked in is we simply go back down so not being afraid to kind of listen to the body on any given day uh like Jordan was saying at the beginning as well and go down if we need to go back down stop at the next reps and just right. kind of train within that reset. too yeah, yeah. reset if, if you're doing eight and you pick a weight that you can only do five or six then we know you're five or six rep max right then we then we can train train harder through that for sure uh our next question and we've been asked this before on the previous podcast uh and i don't know if it's changed for you but it comes from p stoffel she asks, what are your favorite and least favorite exercises so more of a fun question what do you got jordan deadlifts are the favorite least favorite is anything lateral lunge or squat Fair enough. My least favorite has also not changed. It is rear foot elevated split squats. They're the worst. Uh, I do not like them. And my favorite is probably a back squat or pull-ups. One of those two. Pull-ups are high on my list. Uh, rear foot elevated or Bulgarian split squats 
are high on my list. It's one thing we disagree on, Jordan. Yeah, Someone I know. Was it's asking crazy. That the other yeah, day. <laughs> what do you guys disagree on? Well, rear foot elevated split squats. <laughs> yeah, um, that and and the best football team in America. Mm. Right, those are two also things. True. Yep. So the those are ones, and then uh, back squats are creeping up on my list heavy though because I'm actually doing them for the first time in my life, like ever in my life, and not just walking away where my knees are just completely trashed for like a week. So very excited to kind of have that progression built in, and that's been six months. I don't right. know something like that. Yeah. So, um, Pizza Velos asked another one. I think this one's pretty relevant with kind of summer and travel coming up. She asked, "What is our favorite piece of equipment to pack on a vacation?" Oof, it's a good one too. Yeah. What do you What do you got? Um, I am torn between two. One, if you're driving and are able to, and you have it, I love throwing a kettlebell in the trunk uh, that I can feel like I can do a lot of things with. So I have uh, one of my kettlebells, 35 pounds, that I like bringing with me. I can throw it in the trunk. It can sit there. I can do strength with it. I can get some cardio in with it. I can work on some power with it. I think it's super versatile in terms of exercises. If flying on a plane, uh, I would probably bias, if I have the space to do it, uh, I would probably bring some TRX or suspension straps are usually a lightweight, most versatile piece of equipment to do, again, strength, can use them for a little bit of cardio if you need to, uh, but I know that I can hook those up to really any doorway. So if I was traveling on a plane, lightweight TRX uh, or other suspension style strap, if I have access to a car, obviously we don't really want to check a 35 pound kettlebell. Uh, though I know there's people that have done it. Um, <laughs> if it's in the car, I'll th- usually throw a kettlebell in the back. What about you? Kettlebell is probably my go-to. The ultimate sandbag isn't far behind, um, just for, for the versatility of both of those implements. Uh, they can go a really long way for a really long, uh, for, for several different exercises for a really long time. They can fill a lot of boxes. Uh, traveling, I usually, for, for playing anything like that, if I need to, I usually try to bring a resistance band or two. Um, I can usually figure out something to do with those, even if it's something just more core work and, and body weight work with them. I still try to implement them when I can. Nice. I like that one, too. Resistance band was high on my list as well. Mm-hmm. Um, question number four comes from Marianne. She asked, why would someone choose to do yoga over strength training? So kind of the benefits of it. Um, why would someone kind of go that direction in their fitness journey? Great question. I will start. I would say it depends on what your goals are. Are So if you are focusing more on mindfulness, breathing, and a little bit of range of motion that is where yoga comes into play to help you with joint stability uh, muscle uh, kind of flexibility and integrity and help with breathing and mindfulness strength training we say is is our cheat code and it kind of helps with everything like strength training can help with flexibility can help with mobility help with core help with cardio help with strength help with joint integrity like like the 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 list is literally endless And, and we're not even talking about the health things yet we're talking about more of the physical stuff. So it really depends on the col- uh, the whole goal. I think if both are done appropriately, you can get benefits from both. However, if yoga is not using any type of protocols to help you build over uh, progressive overload, which means that you're basically adding a little bit of weight each week, there will be a stimulus that 
you can't quite get out of, right? So the body can only adapt so far. So there's got to be a lot more modifications that need to be made within a time frame of isolation or movement or repetition to help with that to kind of go through it. So you, so they have to be more creative, which is very clear in the yoga mm-hmm. world. Uh, it's cool to watch. It's fun to be a part of. Um, whereas for a strength side of things, we're obviously trying to build strength to help build a, meta, a, a better, stronger body, uh, a more metabolic body where we can go up five pounds a week until we can't. And then we can just switch. Uh, we can get creative and switch different positions and how we hold the bell, how we hold the weight and do everything in that one too. So it, it ultimately depends on the goal. But they both, they both serve a good purpose. Agreed. I think they work very well, kind of in in tandem together, uh, where we can incorporate some of that breathing, that mindfulness, all of those awareness pieces, kind of feeling where the body is in space. I think yoga is very good at allowing someone to access that in that quiet, meditative, mindfulness uh, place, and then those benefits can translate into strength training where we can use it to build stronger, dial into the workouts, move with a little bit more intention in our strength training, and then vice versa, that strength training, it's a cycle kind of feeds back into our yoga piece where we're stronger, we can hold for longer, et cetera, et cetera. So I think they work very well kind of together. Um, And then thinking about what, like Jordan was saying, is that overarching long, like big time goal? Is it more mindfulness breathing based? Is it more strength training based? Uh, and that'll kind of dictate how we can incorporate those both together within someone's fitness program. Mm-hmm. Kind of a similar topic. I know we said we we're going to go in the order of being asked, but this next one is very similar um, in that it com- talks about combining two things. So it comes from Michelle. She asked, sh- how should cardio and strength training be combined together within a fitness training program for specifically fat loss? That's her question. This is a good one that I actually answered very similarly to uh, a podcast that I was on last night as a guest, the Forward Farming Podcast with Amber. Um, one of her guests had a Q&A and, and basically asked this, if you mm-hmm. only have two days a week, what do you prioritize? Or if you only have three, what do you prioritize if yeah. the goal is fat loss? Similar uh, question here. It, it depends on how many days a week you have and it depends on how much time you have, right? So um, answering it very similarly to that is something that I kind of follow with uh, Alan's, Alan Cosgrove's advice on this too. Um, prioritize strength training first. So if you have two, only two days a week to do it, like strength training's gotta be it. If you have three, I would still like strength training to be that third, but that's when the cardio could come in. If you do four, uh, preferably another strength training. So. The, the strength training should take priority because it's a metabolic thing. Even though we're tearing down the body and stre- uh, stressing the body when you're performing strength training, it creates a metabolic stimulus, a metabolic feedback that the body wants to recover from and get better for so it doesn't have to get its ass kicked again. Where cardio is traditionally something that just kind of drains you. It just, it just depletes cal- calories. It just kind of leaves it there. Mm-hmm. Specific types of cardio, like high-intensity interval training or super maximal interval training, those type of things can create a stimulus that can have some metabolic effects if done correctly and not abused. Mm-hmm. So there, there's that part there too. But traditionally, strength training is more of a metabolic thing. It, 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 it factors in the long term, and it creates a more metabolic uh, body as long as we're recovering from it, where cardio is more of like a catabolic thing. It kind of drains the body in the moment and just burns calories. 
That's so I, I always say prior to prioritize strength training. If you're programming strength training correctly, as you very well know, M, we can also make strength training feel an awfully lot like cardio. If you haven't done 12 reps of a squat followed by 12 reps on each arm of a row followed by 12 push-ups followed by 12 lunges on each leg with 20 seconds rest between each one, you probably um, don't know what we're talking about. But if you've done it, you can say that there's definitely cardiovascular stuff involved. Very much so. Very much so. I think, uh, like you were saying, prioritizing that strength training uh, piece is very important and then kind of that cardio layered in on top depending on what days you have available to you what specific goals uh you are pursuing obviously we're speaking in terms of fat loss here so prioritizing that cardio or prioritizing that strength training excuse me above kind of just cardio we want to kind of focus on that first layering in that cardio second um again depending on the days that we have what would you say, M, is like the minimal amount of exercise you should do each week to promote fat loss? And then what's the maximum? Ooh. I think the exercise, so counter question to your question, strength training or like in total? In total. Like total like like if you had um I mean if we if they go by the answer that I just said Right. They should probably prioritize strength training. Strength training, right? right. So if we assume that that's now the case and yep. everyone's a converted strength training and they understand why strength Perfect. training is so valuable. Yep. If they have a minimum amount, what's the dose? If they have a maximum amount, what's the dose? I and they can they can't include cardio. They can't include cardio. Can't include but like cardio. what's right. what's like what's an ideal minimum time frame? Maximum. Yeah. yeah. So for prioritizing strength training going on that route, I would say if possible, two days a week strength training, kind of as that baseline minimum. Um, from a cardio perspective, just movement. We don't necessarily need, uh, outside of that, a specific cardio session as a minimum, but just moving throughout the day, getting those eight to 10,000 steps per day, um, on, especially on days that you don't train, uh, will be helpful in terms of just overall health and movement, kind of veering away from your question specific to fat loss, but prioritizing, like we've talked about in the past on this podcast, health specifically um and then maximum i would say probably no more again prioritizing strength training so assuming these are mostly strength training sessions prioritizing no more i don't think we usually need more than four heavy strength training sessions um if we mix in cardio that might look like a four or if we have a race goal right there's all these specific scenarios but in terms of fat loss when we stick around that four number and don't go over it allows that body time to recover from the strength training we instead of hammering that and this kind of leads into another question that was asked um as well but if we get up to five six seven uh even days of strength training of heavy cardio intensive workouts not just movement but specific workouts high intensity interval training super maximal tra- interval training etc we just can't recover from that. So kind of staying baseline two, strength training maximum four, maybe a five, but that fifth one's gonna look a lot more like recovery and regeneration versus actual like heavy strength training, I think. Yeah, I think I think the big thing to, to recognize there, guys, is the more that you add, the less intense 
they become. Mm -hmm. um, not overall, but we can't just keep adding. We can't do five days a week of just super intense, right? For sure. This is why bodybuilders can't move a lot of times. Most bodybuilders. I can't say all. Some of them move well. But they get they just they 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 have so they have so much volume put in um, to one specific muscle group each day that that muscle group is basically shot for the rest of the week and they have to wait till basically five days for it to recover or wait till next week. Mm -hmm. um, but they're, they're, the powerlifters are the same way, right? They they if they do uh, 10, 20 sets of a squat one day, they they really probably don't train squat for a few days, right? 72, 72 hours or more. Mm -hmm. So the more you add. Um, it's not necessarily the less intense overall it is. You can still have intense days, but you, you can't have intensity each day. I want to make sure I, I say that clearly. Yes. So you have to be more specific and you have to be, you have to be better at programming. And uh, I was going to say at two days minimum, mm -hmm. you have to be strength. And then I, I don't like seven days a week mm -hmm. uh, for anybody. Um, six days a week is pushing it as long as the program's done correctly. They have to have one. I think everybody should have one automatic rest day, no matter what, each week. Uh, I think two is 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 really uh, valuable as well. I think four and five, if you can afford to do it, and if you have the luxury to do it, that's a sweet spot. Two mm -hmm. to three of those, preferably three, should be strength, and two should be some form of metabolic or cardio work. Mm -hmm. And then just get your steps in. Like it's yeah. our, our 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 steps is our ten thousand steps a day is our get out of jail free or get out of jail get out of cardio free card, get out of jail free card. Um, so I, I think that's a valuable thing to, to, uh, focus on as well. Uh, the stuff that you do on a side question mm -hmm. or side note, we haven't talked about neat yet on this podcast. No, we have not. Non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Uh, the stuff that you do that's non-exercise related, but still considered activity. So like walking the dog, walking in general, walking to the door, walking to the grocery store, walking to your car, taking the stairs. Walking, 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 all of the movement that you do, all of the activity that you do outside of an actual assigned or programmed or scheduled um, activity of exercise can actually burn and does actually burn way more calories throughout your day than your hour or two hours at the gym each day. Mm -hmm. What we do in the gym stimulates the appropriate response to get what we want out of it by promoting further fat loss or using fat as fuel or promoting lean, promoting lean muscle building or stronger joints or more power whatever it is so we actually tear down the body again like I said before but the neat stuff is something that you should be doing more uh, outside of the gym anyway you shouldn't be trying to get to the gym every single day or twice a day like the two-a-day stuff is ridiculous when it mm -hmm. when people are doing it because they have zero thought on like what's going on and there's a lot of gyms even in our area that promote it yeah and they'll just have them come back in and do the exact same workout that they did that morning and it's like what are you doing right well like you're saying like you don't you can't be intense all the time so instead of having one intense session that turns into two kind of mediocre sessions where you don't get as much benefit as you would if you just went once went hard and then recovered maybe got in a shorter walk nice and easy stroll shake the legs out get the mm -hmm. steps in just move way more beneficial and way less to recover from on the body as opposed to two big sessions. I would say the one exception to like being intense every day would be if you worked out for like a total of like 20, maybe 30 minutes a day. Yeah. Where you, you, you did your thing, you got, you went intense for 15, 20, 30 minutes, whatever, out, mm -hmm. like done. Yeah. But you can't do that for an hour, hour and a half every day. And again, the programming has to be specific. Like I think about P90X. Uh, well, that was like my first true program that I've ever done, 
right back in 2010 maybe 10 or 11 um summer of with my buddy specs who was just in town last week um shout out specs if you're listening to this and you're 115 degree weather down in arizona uh but we 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 were up in a second floor apartment and we just moved in and it was just me at the time my roommates didn't move in yet so i'm like yeah i'm not i'm not turning on the ac and we did it in the carpet in there and we just sweat it like it was just it was bad it was awful Oof, right that seems terrible um just stupid right and anyway that is intense every day mm-hmm. and then like the days that aren't are yoga which still sucked right because right. he's making you hold it for like a minute or the ab ripper x or the Mm-hmm. Cardio X, which still sucked. Yes, right? but still intense. Yes, yeah. yes, that was intense, but it was it was programmed well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, our next question, kind of pivoting a little bit, comes from Pam M this time, and she said, "With the hot days coming, what besides water can you drink to stay hydrated?" Fantastic question. The big thing, I just had this, our triathlete Carol was in this morning and she asked, she's like, hey, my race is at three o'clock on Saturday. It's going to be upper 80s. And yeah, like, what do we do? I usually race in the morning. I'm like, oof, like, yeah, that's a good question. I think it goes along with Pam's here, but mm-hmm. uh, obviously water is there. Other things aside from water, um, it, it's, it's more so looking at what's the worst things to drink. So I think like if you do any type of like sugary drinks, um, that are out there like sodas and juices, uh, alcohol and caffeine. Those things are diuretics, or those things can kind of cause uh, some faster sweat. Like like they, they they make you sweat more, or they make you lose your hydration. They don't hydrate you as well. Sugary drinks maybe not so much, but those are usually just bad. They just don't make you feel well, and they could probably cause some stuff. Where in this case we'd want to go with some fo- form of low calorie beverage um, and electrolyte filled beverage. So those would be ideal. So there's teas out there that don't have calories in it or sugars in it. There's several other drinks like the Gatorade Zeros, the Powerade Zeros, the Mio Energies. Um, we can go forever on this list, right? The propels. Right. If you are somebody that sweats a lot, and if you're doing activity outside and sweating a lot, uh, salt is what you need to replenish and you need to put back in sodium. So uh, a good pinch of real salt in your water for every basically hour that you're sweating. Uh, and, and having that glass of water is a big thing. Our golfers, I tell them, usually I tell them every three to four holes, make sure you're drinking about 16 ounces of water with a pinch of salt, especially if you're a sweater like I am. I, I go through sometimes a gallon of water in the course mm-hmm. in a four to five hour round. There's also supplements out there like liquid IVs and propels that you can just add to your water. It gives them flavor. Some of them do have six to 11, 20 grams of sugar, so you have to be, be careful of those. But if you are in activity, you're going to use that sugar in a heartbeat and it's it's a lot of times the sugar's just there to actually help um like digest and, and get the nutrients and the electrolytes to your muscles faster Correct. So the, the sugar the sugar expedites the process actually in this case mm-hmm. yeah i think it depends on what you're doing if you're just kind of like sitting outside it's a hot day we need to stay hydrated that's where consuming some high sugar, like high calorie sports drink type beverages perhaps isn't the best option. But like Jordan mentioned, if you're out doing activities, you're racing, you're on the course, etc., having something with some calories can also be an easy way to get in calories as well. Um, especially when some of those activities, speaking as a distance uh, trail runner, you often don't want to consume those calories. So having those electrolytes come in a form that does have some calories, usually in the form of sugar that is 
immediately used as you're as you're running, as you're biking, etc., uh, can be quite helpful. So I really like the Jordan mentioned. I like what IVs. Um, I personally use. Oh gosh, I'm gonna blank on the name of it. Uh, it's just, I'm gonna. I'll send Jordan a link to put in our description. I'm gonna blank on the name. I haven't used it because I haven't trail run and it hasn't been hot enough to need it. Um, but it's essentially like a glucose powder uh, with electrolytes in it. Uh, Element, L-M-N-T, is another good one that has very high sodium uh, and other electrolyte contents in it. So if you are out for an extended period of time, that's an easy one to dilute in. Like, I'll put a packet in a gallon of water. Um, So that's another brand that I really like as well that is also a little bit lower calorie um, in terms of, like, sugar content. It's just really electrolytes and flavoring. So, I got I got one for you. Um, Go for it. This one's from Mark, and I wanted to ask you at first from FRC stuff. Okay. Which is better, doing multiple reps for an exercise to help stretch or get more flexibility, or holding it for a static amount of time? So, which is better to gain flexibility or mobility, doing multiple reps for an exercise or holding it for time? Ooh, I like this one. This is a good one. I think it goes both ways. Um, I think when we're speaking in terms of mobility, flexibility, right, those are kind of two different things. Flexibility being just the ability to move passively. So if someone moved moved you through a range of motion, thinking that in terms of flexibility, mobility, uh, the ability to kind of move yourself through that range of motion. Um, So when we speak in those terms, kind of thinking flexibility, just static stretching, et cetera, mobility, the ability to kind of move uh, with a little bit more added control. I think when we're in terms of do we just hold it or do we do reps of it, there is room for both. If we're in more of a recovery session, more of a regen session, we're looking to gain flexibility often a static hold can be beneficial to start, but to truly help the body hold on to that gained range of motion, if you will. Uh, Something like some reps of a Pales Rails, which is a progressive angular isometric loading, regressive angular isometric loading, which is super science-y, so we're not gonna go too far. We could make a whole episode on this, uh, or multiple, but using something like that to unlock some new ranges of motion uh, might be beneficial. So when we think in terms of flexibility, mobility, is it the muscle or is it the joint, right? Is it the joint telling the body, hey, don't move this way, or is it actually the tight muscle? And a lot of times we think it's the tight muscle, which is where the passive stretching can kind of bypass a little bit of that quote unquote tightness that you might feel. But if the joint is the root cause of the problem and cause of that problem, when I say problem, I mean tightness, uh, then it might be the pales rails or hovers or lifts or other kind of modalities there that we can build on and do reps of those and use that to kind of unlock, if you will, more range of motion within the joint itself. So I think a twofold kind of approach from that FRC perspective, we need to kind of let the body relax and chill, accustomed to a little bit more range of motion uh, in a passive stretch first, 
kind of bypassing that stretch reflex, that initial response of the body to lock up, to not let us move somewhere because it's not sure if it's going to get out of there. And then using uh, reps of another potentially more strength training based movement, uh, which is what both the pails and the rails are within that range to explore a little bit more. I can't really say it any better. I think the big thing is to understand that your body is tight sometimes because of joint restriction stuff and sometimes it's tight because of soft tissue muscle restriction stuff. So our job is to figure out from that standpoint of movement, overall movement, is there a mobility restriction somewhere, a stability restriction somewhere, or is it soft tissues that have now become tight and restricted both? And if we, 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 we basically have to go through a screen and an assessment to figure this out. Once we figure it out, it then comes down to the prescription of an exercise to help the person with that. So if we know that their tissues are tight, stretching for 60 seconds or longer, if it is a soft tissue, truly a soft tissue issue, is kind of the way to go. 30 seconds can get some stuff done, but 60 seconds is the key. And we do not want to do this prior to exercise. Mm -hmm. This is a post-exercise or off-day remedy. We do not want to do these long static stretches to feel release and gain that range of motion from soft tissue on those days. That's when we'd rather make sure the body's working functionally through uh, all of its joints, complex joint patterns, movement patterns that promote more of our mobile joints and mobile tissues working together as a unit because that's how the body is designed to work. And then we can make, uh, think about maybe, uh, I was trying to think of an example, like, ma- like making it work together as a chain reaction almost to help with that and, and making sure that we're kind of covering, we can kind of cover chain to chain if we need to. And then at the end of a workout or on the off days when you want to restore the body and kind of get those tissues back in, if it, 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 again, if it is indeed soft tissue, that's when you can work on stretching it and holding it for breaths or for an extended period of time to see if we can get the release. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, like you were saying, comes down to finding that root cause. And that root cause might be different for everyone. Everyone experiences, quote unquote, tightness differently. So finding uh, why you feel tight is it the muscle that you're feeling or is the muscle a byproduct of the joint itself allows you to address that in the appropriate manner that will get you kind of that outcome that you need. Yeah. would like to see. Um, next up on the list, there was a couple questions that were pretty similar. So I'm going to kind of do both of those next. Uh, when is, so Robin asked, when is the best time to start working out? And Phyllis asks, if I've never gone to the gym before, how do I start? Where do I start? Is Robin asking, was she asking, like, what is the best time, like, time of day? No, like, best time to start working out in general. Like, That's starting now. Yeah. Right now. Next question. She she also answered that question, but I told yeah. her. I'd she knows what we're going to anyway. say. She probably said, I know what Jordan's going to say. <laughs> next question. Great question, Robin, but next question. So kind of diving into Phyllis's angle of the question, I've never gone to the gym before, how do I start? You start with a coach, you start with, because you wanna make sure that you're assessed appropriately um, and you're doing things appropriately. A coach or a trainer, preferably a good one, and and you wanna make sure that you're taking your time. If you overdo it, 
or you don't have somebody there watching you or helping you out, you will overdo it. And then if you get hurt, you will hate all gyms, not just that gym, all gyms forever. And all Mm -hmm. gyms get put in this bucket. We have so many people in our area that went to a gym, didn't have help, got hurt, didn't get results. And they blame gyms in general for this. So um, definitely recommend starting with some sort of guidance, even if you find a program online, it might suck. It might be stupid for you. It might be the worst thing for you, but at least you're following something because um, you at least know what the end result could be. Mm-hmm. If you do random stuff, you're going to get random results. So having some sort of guidance is highly recommended. I agree. I think having someone that knows kind of what they're doing that will uh, promote kind of that like better experience for you, uh, having someone that you trust kind of in your corner can be helpful in terms of just having a third party like I don't know what to think about this and just bounce ideas off of in that regard as well um, can be quite helpful and if you don't have access to any of those things I think we touched on it in literally episode one just start walking walking like before you even go to the gym you're like I don't even know if I want to step foot in a gym I, I just know I need to move more walk just get outside, walk, walk in your house, up and down stairs if that feels good for you. Just if you're starting to move for the first time, taking 10, 15 minute walks, five minute walks even, that's kind of how, how I'd recommend starting. And then after you feel comfortable doing that, like maybe we do want to hire a coach, maybe we want to step into gym, kind of finding one that will best suit you uh, in the environment that you want to work out in. Love it. Uh, next up, pivoting into nutrition, if this comes from yet another Pam, Pam you. We have four. Yeah, and I think three all of them, them asked questions. I've talked to all of them. Yeah, I was yeah. three of the four on here, yeah. <laughs> if someone is a complete wreck nutritionally, everything's off the rails, what is the one and first thing that you would recommend doing to start improving? <sighs> Pam, you just... Always the killer question. She's so good. I know. She's so good. Um, <sighs> my first one is a food journal, just because then you can you can get awareness and you can get mindfulness. You can look for patterns. You can, it can take you out of your head. It depersonalizes everything, takes emotion out of it, gets you a little bit more logical based, and at least kind of like gets data on the thing. That is a person that also, me, hates food journals, but I will still do one every once in a while when I feel like I'm a little bit off and I don't know everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the reasons that I said on that end, it's it's like a reset button uh, food journal. Doesn't I, even don't have to change anything that you're eating. You'll automatically right. do it because of the food journal. Right. So food journal. I like the food journal a lot um, as well. One of mine would be just start making the choices that you know are intuitively more nutrient dense for you. Like I don't think anyone needs to sit with. A nutrition coach to know that perhaps having a side of vegetables versus a side of french fries is going to have more nutrients if we put a plate in front of you of shit food and healthy food you know which one's healthy correct right like it's it's it's, it's so obvious it's 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 stupid right and that sounds quite simple and i recognize that that can be very difficult to do but I think the more you can stack up those little wins of like, I'm just going to have a vegetable today instead of French fries. Or yeah. I'm going to have carrots with whatever, with a Greek yogurt ranch dip instead of potato chips and a sour cream and onion yeah. dip, right? Those intuitively healthy choices can make so much more of a difference than I think that we 
even see from the jump. We always focus on, oh, but I went out to eat. But it's not the going out to eat. It's the all the little things that kind of add up that we don't necessarily think about mm-hmm. that kind of create, again, to refer back to how the question was framed, that complete wreck nutritionally. It's not the one day out to eat a week. It's the little things every day yeah. that make the most difference. Keyword Emily said there a few times, intuitively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what to do, just making those little choices. Mm-hmm. Um... Diving into, you touched on a little bit of the emotional piece there, kind of pivoting in. There there was two questions, again, that were quite similar. One, I know the right things to eat, the most nutrient-dense foods, but I just don't. How can I change that? And then second follow-up, why, when you have one scoop of ice cream, do you want to go back for more? Those come from Susan and Karen, so kind of diving into that emotional wow. piece. Wow, wow. I know. Which Susan? We have seven Susans. Susan, OG Susan. OG, okay. And which Karen, L or P? P. Okay. Yes, we do have multiple of both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I should have put yeah. all the initials. Um, so if, if I go rapid fire here, answer the first one. You just have to have the discipline to do it. It's not a matter of if I like this or don't like this sometimes. It's not a matter of if I write it wrong. It's a matter of like this is healthy for me and nourishing my body or not. Or, mm-hmm. or not even a matter of if it's healthy or not. It's just the discipline to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just comes down to sometimes we just got to do things and then just make that the habit. And that's the way things are. And then what happens there is the times that you don't do those things and you can maybe treat yourself or have a free meal or free snack or free night of food, um, they become a little bit more valuable and you become a little bit more in control. In regards to the other one, anything that has sugar and fats mixed together, especially high doses of both, ice creams, cookies, cupcakes, donuts, cakes, uh, all day long, are meant to be triggered. They actually have a stronger uh, reaction. Is that the right word? Reaction to your brain? A stronger, uh, the, a stronger the brain, response. Re, the brain responds, like the neurotransmitters respond. The neurotransmitter so, response mm. is stronger through sugar, and that's like even amplified like more with fat because it amplifies it um, than cocaine does to the brain uh, from some studies that have been done a long time ago with rats um, to make you want more. Mm-hmm. So the big thing is, and this is like the silliest habit of all time that nobody ever really focuses on, Eat and drink slow. That will help. It will. Eat and drink slow. And use smaller smaller, uh, silverware and um, I want to say Tupperware. It's not Tupperware. Plates. Dishes. There we go. (laughs) Dishes. I'm off for words tonight, guys. It's a different day that we're doing this. Different time. uh, Different. If you use smaller portion-sized plates and silverwares and dishes, it will help as well. I like it. I think to touch on the first one for me... It always comes back to we want to be comfortable as human beings. Like our body wants to be in the state of homeostasis and our discomfort where we are has to outweigh the discomfort of making the hard decision. So we have to be more uncomfortable where we're at in our fitness journey, in where we are nutritionally, right? Kind of tying back to our previous question on like the complete wreck. We have to be more uncomfortable in that position than we are to say, no, I don't want to have the cookies, the cakes, the donuts, the ice cream, etc. That's and some that's fire a, right there, Em. It's a tough oh. pill to swallow uh, when, we, when we think about it because it's admitting that we are uncomfortable where we are at, right? And it's tough to admit that to ourselves. Uh, however, 
when we do, we're able to more honestly talk to ourselves and be like, hey, you know what, like this isn't maybe the choice I want to make. And then we make that action to do the, again, it will still be uncomfortable, but the less uncomfortable thing in choosing to not consume to something, in choosing to consume a more nutrient dense option, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, to touch on Susan's question, and I know she also answered this a little bit herself when she asked the question as well. It's funny how some of our members have done that uh, as we were asking them for questions today. But the ice cream, one other thing you can do, like Jordan was talking about, the portion control dishes and serving sizes, etc., is when we purchase some of these items at the store, purchasing them in smaller serving sizes so that it's simply not in the house, right? That can be sometimes an easy way to say, oh, I can't go back for more ice cream because it's not there. So all we're doing there is changing our environment. I had a really good discussion with one of our members yesterday on this as well, in which some of the most disciplined or quote unquote motivated or et cetera, however many words you want to use to describe that, however that works for you, in framing that, right, those people don't necessarily have more willpower, discipline, or motivation as we like to think that they do. They've simply defined and organized their environment in a way that creates those decisions or makes those decisions easier for them to make, right? So when I say, oh gosh, I really want more ice cream and there's none in the house, You would have to put on shoes, go to the store, purchase the ice cream, right? There's all those barriers. There are those walls in the way. As opposed to if it's already in the house, right? Okay, like that's easier to eat. Or, oh, but my husband brought home a bag of chips. Like my partner brought home bread and cookies and cakes and candies, right? Those things can all be there. And it's hard to sometimes define what that environment looks like specifically, especially with significant others, kids, etc. But when we can move those to a higher cabinet, put some barriers in front of them, when the cookies and the cakes and the candy aren't the first thing you see eye level when you open the door, probably not going to be the first thing you grab, right? When the, you know, ice cream isn't the first thing in the freezer and we have bags of even if it's just bags of frozen vegetables, which are nothing like ice cream as an ice cream person myself. I do love good ice cream. Uh, When we see the vegetables, we just don't see the ice cream. But when we see the ice cream, we're like, oh, but I want that. That's pretty good, right? Tying back into those highly palatable foods. So being mindful of how you design your environment can really make a difference in those choices and decisions that you make around food. So how can you better structure your environment to make better decisions and make those decisions a little bit easier for you to make uh, as you're going? We did all that with me leaving the room and coming back in. (laughs) Hopefully I didn't ramble too much. I'm not going to cut any of that out so you can really get the full effect. (laughs) I told told the customer who was in there, I'm like, Emily's just going to keep talking right now until I get back in. It's great. I really did. I was about to stop. I was if you weren't going to walk right back in, that was about my <laughs> end so anyway. Awesome. Um, let's see. I've got I've got one here to go throw at it. you. Why do I need a trainer when my friend can just show me how to do this? That was another one from Phyllis. Ooh, that's another good one. Coming at you with the questions. Um, 
I think the benefit in using a train... Actually, I know. I shouldn't even say I think. We kind of answered it earlier, too. Right. We did touch on this a little bit. But having someone that can definitively not only tell you maybe their experience, right, which is where a lot of friend advice and family advice comes in. They speak from their experience because that is what they know. But with everyone being so individual, it's tough to say what will work for them might not work for you. They don't have the same body, the same injury history, the same health history. So having a coach that can not only guess at what you might need, but more importantly, assess and know exactly what you need to make sure your body is moving in the ways it needs to move, improving the patterns we need to improve, preventing injury or reducing the risk of injury, I should say, uh, in, in anything that you're doing as opposed to having a friend who might not have the right qualifications, the right experience, worked with a person just like you, they might say, oh, I did squats, you should do squats. But what does your squat look like as opposed to their squat, right? Like everyone uses a little bit different implements, different foot position, maybe we elevate the heels. And having a coach that can really dive into those nuances to get you the program that works best for you and your body is going to breed not only long-term results and success, but also your ability to complete the program in general. Super simple, just saying what Emily said, just to echo two things. Uh, what works for your friend won't always work for you. And what happens if you get hurt or doesn't something doesn't feel good, then what happens, mm-hmm. right? So uh, your friend isn't educated on this all the way through to help you uh, create modifications. You could simply just skip it or do more of something else, which works. But um, the, the trainer's there from the educational standpoint. And the, I think the other, the other big thing is, depending on the friend, otherwise you might need to find new friends, the trainer is there to, is, is basically, if it's the right trainer, they are hired to serve you. And they can take you out of kind of the emotional state in the head where the friend might not be able to have those same conversations or say those same things. Mm-hmm. Nor will you listen to the friend like you would a trainer. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, Pivoting a little bit, we have one from Julie. She asked, what do you look for in a good training shoe? Now, we touched on this in the last episode, I think, very briefly. Mm -hmm. Very briefly. But what do you got, Jordan? Uh, I think that depending on your feet, first and foremost, you you have to understand where we're coming from. But from a shoe standpoint, we like a wide toe box, no matter what type of shoe you're in, a wide toe box where your shoes aren't scrunched. One of the main things why we have problems with hips, knees, low backs is because the feet aren't at their uh, true proper form. So a wide toe box, uh, a nice snug wide heel is, is good. And then I'm a fan of minimalist style shoes, ones without massive heel supports or massive arch support types of things so that you can restore your natural foot back. Uh, into its have your foot be kind of in its natural position throughout the day agreed agreed I think wide toe box is pretty universal if we can find one that allows your feet to act like feet as opposed to being cushioned uh, under a big heavy sole a lot of times we find that that gives you a better connection with the ground you're able to feel more confident when you lift you're not you're more steady on your feet into the floor all of those great things Um, so a lot of the couple of the brands that we like, the Nike Metcons, the Reebok Nanos, uh, the No Bull training shoes, um, the... Our Vivos. Our Vivo Barefoots. I was trying to go training shoes and then Minimus shoes, Jordan. 
<laughs> I had a I had a thing. Well, in my I mind. use my minimalist shoes as, as training, training shoes. shoes. I know. So, kind of the first three more <laughs> versatile in terms of um, a little bit more supportive. Uh, if you do have some foot things that require a little bit more support as you're transitioning, it's very tough to go from a standard sneaker or a standard dress shoe and go right into a minimus like barefoot style vivo barefoot or zero type shoe so so having some of those might be a good middle ground if you're looking to make that transition Um, but like jordan was saying the vivo barefoots that we both wear uh, and then the zeros as well are two great very minimal minimus style so as little of a sole as we can have wide toe box letting the feet be feet in as many ways as possible while still wearing shoes the, the arch, the heel drop is, when we say minimalist too, the heel drop is what what's kind of zero, measured there. Yeah. So that's like zero. Um, that's hence the name zero, which is actually spelled with an X, X-E-R-O. But like Metcons, uh, Nanos, No Bulls, th- those will usually have like a three or four millimeter heel drop on mm-hmm. those. But th- and they are minimalist style, right? They still, ha- they still have a little Flat bit. Flat sole. Yeah, minimalist style. Um, but they won't have a complete zero drop. Yeah. Uh, Julie had another one that I really liked. When do you tell your coach about an injury instead of just pushing through? Gosh, she's a good question asker too. I know. Um, we have a lot of good ones. Um, so I, I think the biggest thing is to let your coach know anytime there is any type of pain that feels abnormal. And uh, I say that, and we just had this conversation with somebody yesterday at the gym. Mm-hmm. Pain is a signal. It's just feedback, and the coach should know feedback when when you're working with a coach. Mm-hmm. If, if the coach doesn't know feedback, the coach can't can't give you his or her expertise to their extent. So I, I think it should be it should happen right away. You don't push through it like ever. Agreed. I think the the conversation yesterday kind of centered around the small things, right? When we know about them, when they're small things, a lot of times it's easier to address the small things than it is when it becomes a very large thing. Mm -hmm. So as soon as we can get that feedback, right, the body can't say, hey, I'm hurt, right? In in words, it says I'm hurt through feedback, through the pain. So anytime we feel that, letting us know as the coach and saying, hey, like this just doesn't feel right. We can sometimes make a change, make a modification, and that just prevents it from becoming a big thing. So as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Good questions. I agree. Uh, Next one comes from Lori P. And she asked, why are blue blockers beneficial? What's the deal with blue blockers? Blue light, I mean, specifically for bedtime. I guess we'll just, like, we can just talk about that, and then if there's mm-hmm. anything else we want to cover within it. For sure. Blue light can be stimulating to the brain, or it is stimulating to the brain. That can be. It, it is. Mm-hmm. And blue light is typically any light that kind of comes out of electronics, um, screens, and uh, that that stimulation to the brain can disrupt sleep and make it poor sleep. So blue light blockers help uh, take that. I actually use blue light filters on all of my devices except for my television at home 24 7 mm-hmm. um and that's just because i'm too lazy to turn them on and off each day and i don't have an automated thing <laughs> so i just i just flip them all over and it's funny now when i look at a computer without the blue light thing like my eyes like whoa like, it, yeah. like it's it's like nasty bright, bright like super bright I'm like holy crap can you turn that down and they're like what yeah <laughs> and and it's it's funny how how your feedback can change uh with that very much so. I also use them. I actually have them automated to go um, as well. But there's definitely times like at night 
if I'm doing something and I need to see a color, if I'm doing a social media post or something on my computer, it's already switched over. I'm like, oh, what color is this? And I'll change it. And there's that like, whoa, like my eyes. I'm like, oh, turn it off. Like I'll do it tomorrow. So definitely kind of being mindful of those blue lights, uh, especially around that sleep time interrupting uh, kind of that natural wind down period of the body uh, is is definitely beneficial. Um, yeah, there to and the there's body. there's different there's actually blue light therapy out there too, right? So mm-hmm. blue light can be beneficial just in this regard. Like I don't know if Lori P was asking from a certain angle, but from sleep it can disrupt sleep. From sleep, for yeah. sure. Uh, well, hour, hour before, by the way, is it an hour? hour yeah, least, usually it's an least, hour, hour and a half. Yeah, at least a minimum of hour before. That's why they usually say like on a nighttime routine to help you sleep better, screens off an hour before bed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that should be good for everybody, even if you are blue light filters. But if, if not, like that's that's a big one. That'll that'll disrupt your sleep. So not falling asleep with the TV on is not ideal. We have our next question from our fourth Pam. I forgot Pam Jam was also on this list. We did list. get them all. Yeah. All Pam right. Pam-packed. So We're Pam-packed. Pam Jam asked, how... Do you get over the self-consciousness of ordering different things at a restaurant, i.e. eye rolls from friends, questions from waiters and waitresses, etc.? It's a weird thing. If you tell your friends, there's this weird, there, there's a weird thing out there, uh, there's, a, there's this cliche where if you tell everybody, oh, I'm doing this thing at the gym or I'm doing this thing, everyone will make fun of you and say, come on, live a little come on, you can't be, you can't be so restrictive, like live a little, this is boring, it's not you. But if you tell everybody like, hey, I'm doing this for myself, they have zero, zero things, right? Mm-hmm. They, they won't say a word like, awesome, that's cool. And then they will probably ask you about what you're doing. And so the big thing is, is just say it, it is for yourself and, and understanding all that rather than picking fights that people that do not understand you do that. Just find the common ground of like, hey, I'm doing this for myself. I've got some things I'm working on right now. And I want to make sure I stay on track because I'm seeing some really good results. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Or if you are going out to eat a lot and that's happening, maybe not going out to eat so much. Right. Change or, it. yes. Or when you are going out to eat, use that as your free night to have whatever the hell you want because you do have to live a little. Right? There, there shouldn't be, you shouldn't be living in a, in a, in a world of restriction 24-7. Right. It's not kind of like I was talking about earlier, it's a lot of times we like to think about like, oh, that one meal out to eat during the weekend, and we forget about all of those little other things during the week. Mm -hmm. Whereas if we took that one meal out, we could hypothetically order whatever, barring, you know, trying to order everything on the menu or something wild. If we have a normal meal out to eat, we order whatever we want, that fits just as well within a lifestyle or like even a fitness goal regardless of that fitness goal you're pursuing we can still make just as much progress with that one meal out without really too much modification now I know a little bit more uh kind of than Jordan because I was there for the discussion of the question and I know specifically she was referring to a quick discussion that she and I had on Monday in which sometimes the oils that are used when they cook and certain ingredients don't necessarily make you feel the best and you want to kind of limit those things within. So when you're ordering at a restaurant and you're like, oh, I know that they use X oil and I know that that oil is not great for me, um, whether it's a a little bit more pro-inflammatory oil like canola oil or a seed oil, etc., right? Asking for them to cook things in butter or without oil, all of those kind of things as we're ordering at a restaurant, ordering things that are 
grilled or steamed can be a little bit easier uh, on the stomach if you know that you're like, I always feel like trash after I eat this, knowing how to modify your order. And a lot of times restaurants are getting better at having some other alternatives available as well. So not being afraid to kind of say, hey, just quick question or asking, hey, what do you cook your things and what do you use? They'll be able to tell you. And having that information, even if you're just framing it in a terms of curiosity, can sometimes help uh, from that regard as well. So you're not necessarily requesting it right off the bat. You're just being curious and being like, ooh, you know what? Like, actually, I'd prefer, like, would it be possible if you did this? So framing it in terms of curiosity um, can sometimes help you feel a little bit more confident uh, in changing, adjusting in order as well. Yeah, the, the big thing is is a lot of it, like I understand that you probably feel like you're being a nuisance to everybody and kind of bringing the group down. You're being the Debbie mm-hmm. Downer. That's what they're going to make you feel like. And if the waitress gives you any trouble, like tell them to piss off. Like they are literally there to serve you. The chef in the back can cook anything on there. You can make modifications. They do this same stuff for people with allergies if they go out to eat, right? Mm-hmm. Like that can't be something that we get mad at. If it is, that's the waitress's fault. She shouldn't be, or the waiter's fault. He or she shouldn't be working there anyway. Um, and that stems from the top for allowing that to even happen. So if you see anything in the menu, you can always customize it to make it your own order. You might pay a little bit more. It's for the convenience, but there there are those options in there too. Absolutely. Our next question comes from Sherry, and she asked how not to talk yourself out of going to the gym. So how to talk yourself into going to the gym uh, would be kind of the barring of that. Barring the blip that could happen that you could potentially get hurt at a gym. When is the last time you did a workout and regretted it? Here you seriously I can't say I can't tell you one. Okay, next question. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I think sometimes it <laughs> A little bit more practical advice before I move on. I, <laughs> I was like, I Emily's think, not going to let me just do that. <laughs> I, I, well, I have something. I have a good answer for this one, too. One of my favorite things to do is, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to do my ramp or warm up, however I go. And if I still feel absolutely exhausted, like truly body wiped tired, okay, I'm going to either super deload, adjust, do a little extra ramp, change my workout, etc. But a lot of times when I'm sitting at home and I'm like, oh, I just don't feel like it today. It's not that I really can't. It's that I just simply don't want to. So the first kind of that cliche of like the first step is the hardest one, right? You just got to get out the door. Getting out the door, committing to the ramp, kind of dialing into that, treating that ramp with just as much intention as you would a heavy strength training set is key in kind of changing the state of your body, changing your position, changing how you're moving, getting your body moving, and nine and a half, 9.9 times out of 10, you're going to get through that ramp and you're going to be like, "Eh, I actually don't feel that bad. Like I actually could do this today. It's not, you know, it's not as bad as I thought when I was just chilling at home. So taking the first step, committing to the ramp first, and then going from there, making future decisions after you ramped don't make the decisions before you do that yeah and there's never a time where you ever have to say like even if your workout is programmed to be 60 minutes like maybe you just come in to do 10 to 15 see how you Mm -hmm. feel maybe 10 to 15 turns into 15 to 20 turns into 20 to 30 turns into the whole workout for sure 
just small small wins. Yep. Um, Susie asked, "Does more protein really help you lose weight?" Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> you gonna elaborate on that? Are we stick. No, with yes? I've 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 said it too many times. Um, we've talked about it in this episode before. We have the thermal en- energy effect of food. Your body literally has to work harder to break it down. Protein is metabolic. Your body will preserve lean muscle tissue and promote something else as fuel. It, like I don't understand why this is still uh, sometimes a resistance to people. Not that mm-hmm. Susie's resisting us with this question, um, but the research has proven it. Re- research has tried to prove it wrong by doing it, and they still can't prove it wrong. Mm-hmm. So it, we wouldn't be continuously saying it and just have people focusing on it if it were wrong, and it's hard because it works, and that's why not everybody can do it. But if you're serious about getting fat loss results and getting it started, you have to get protein in check, and you have to be in a caloric deficit. Those are the two main things. Can't question them. Can't argue about them. Um, honestly, like there's there's a lot of research that shows you can probably eat whatever other carbs and fats you want from it as long as you're in a caloric deficit and the protein is in check. Mm-hmm. But we also promote nutrient-dense foods and healthy living here too, so we're not going to go that route. Right. Yeah, I think protein, an important distinction is when we are in a weight loss journey, we want to lose body fat. Protein helps make sure that we are main and strength training helps make sure that we are maintaining and or potentially building muscle and strength. We're not losing muscle. Protein will help us do that. Without protein, it is easier for the body to burn muscle for fuel than it is to burn fat for fuel. So we want to make sure that we are preserving that as well. So eat your protein. Yeah, it's it, we can kind of bring this back threefold if we want to, right? We can we can say uh, back from the. Uh, previous questions of uh, really early in this podcast of strength training is a metabolic thing to do for the body and it stimulates the body to build the lean muscle and promotes the recovery of lean muscle to help you build it which therefore then promotes more uh, long-term fat burning as long as you're building muscle and we need enough protein to do that you need the strength training to do that cardiovascular training for the most part can just drain calories it can help you create a caloric deficit but it just drains you the protein, like Emily just said, is to send the signals to the brain to make sure that there's a nitrogen uh, imbalance and a positive nitrogen imbalance in the body so that it will help promote more of that lean muscle tissue that needs to be repaired or preserved. And then it therefore then looks into something else to look for as fuel. Oof, that was a mouthful. Um, basically, it looks for something else other than muscle for fuel, which is fat. And if you are in a caloric deficit, you probably have pounds that you want to lose, which means that you have X pounds of fat to burn. If you don't give the body the ample opportunity to use that for fuel to burn because you keep overeating or you don't eat enough protein or you're not strength training, you will not burn fat. Boom. Uh, there's one more. There, I do have a couple more, and I do want to let people know. I know when they asked these questions, I said, that is an entire episode. We might not get to it today. So <laughs> I have those in the back pocket. So if we haven't gotten to your question today, I have them in a list. They are. We can't give a five-minute answer. We need a 20 minute segment of a podcast episode so look for those uh coming in the future so i've already told you if you ask me one of those questions you know who you are you know what you asked those will be there uh but last one that i have on my list jeff asked there's a lot of talk on like your ideal weight and the bmi scale and what you should weigh what should you gauge your ideal weight off of Hmm. It's a trick question, I feel. What should you gauge your ideal weight off of? 
Um, I would argue and say, why do you have to gauge it off a number and say, uh, gauge it off how you feel? And those that are chasing a number will be always chasing a number. That's a perfection chase. That's a pes that's a pessimistic type of view on that, not an optimistic view, because you'll always be searching for something that you're doing wrong and why you're chasing a number. Got to base it on how you feel. So I think you have to learn, look for ways to base your progress on feeling and, and your work and, and, and what you're feeling and how you're feeling rather than just the number that has a summation or an ultimate hold over everything because it doesn't, because that number changes literally by the hour. Mm-hmm. So. I agree. I think relying on an ideal weight number is oftentimes an outcome goal and those aren't always the most sustainable. Like Jordan said, you'll be on that hamster wheel forever just chasing and chasing and chasing after that number. Um, and when you get to that number, who's to say that, you know, that's actually not where you want it to be when we can step back and think about how we feel, think about what do we want to do? What process oriented goals? And I know we've talked about this in previous episodes, what process oriented goals can we pursue to really enjoy the journey of getting to a spot where we feel good, where we feel strong, where we feel healthy, where we can do all the things that we want to do for the amount of time and the amount of our lifespan that we want to do them in. I think that's kind of that true ideal place to be to kind of tie it back. I don't think a number on the scale uh, is ever going to indicate necessarily how you feel. Um, I think I think that can be a byproduct. It can be measuring body fat percentages and weigh-ins can be helpful to measure progress on our way there. But I think having a, just a number on a scale is kind of a tricky spot to be, uh, especially when you get to that number. And like I said, who's to say you get to that number and you're like, this is not how I thought I'd feel. And you find out you were never really chasing that number to begin with uh, in the first place, even though you thought you were. You were chasing a feeling that you thought would come at said number. Agreed. So, did you have any more questions on your list? I didn't. I just I just had two. Okay, <laughs> that's okay. I know I was on the most of these came from the floor this morning. I told everyone that they had to ask us question um, before they left today. So got. Quite a few good questions, as always. If you have any other questions you want us to cover uh, as we dive into Season 2, like Jordan said, going on a little bit of a break here, kind of reset, regroup. Uh, We will have some guests coming on uh, in Season 2 as well. So any questions you have, uh, guests and topics you might want to see, kind of diving into that uh, as we head into Season 2. So as always... Thank you guys very much for tuning in to this week's episode of the OOFDA podcast. Always great hanging out with you. Uh, if you have a chance, leave a rating and review, especially if you are over on the Apple Podcasts. We are very close uh, to that top 100, so we'd very much appreciate it. Otherwise, we will see you guys in season two when we come back. Yeah, we don't know how long this hiatus will be, but probably around the 4th of July-ish, just a couple weeks off. Like I said, we're going to recruit, look at the numbers, see what's working well, what's not. And uh, I don't think too much will change, mm-hmm. to be honest. But we're going to bring bring it back, and we're going to kind of get the guests going. This was like a first season to really get this thing going and get it started. And now we just need to go back and probably start sharing these episodes again from episode one. Please do the same on your end. Share this on your social media. Share this with your friends. Have them listen to it. Text it to them. Send it to them. Email. Like all of those things help us out so, so, so much. So does a five-star rating and a subscription. Those things, uh, the five-star rating and review. Those things help us a ton. Honestly, any platform makes us look good, but... 
the Apple one seems to be doing the best, uh, followed by Sonos. Uh, Google seems to be a little bit lower on that end for the podcast stuff, which is okay. It just is what it is. Cool. Thanks, guys. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Bye.